Welcome to another episode of the Mind's Eye podcast. I'm Dr Neil Shuey, a neuro-ophthalmologist in Melbourne, and we have again Dr Annika Vanderwalt, uh, also a neurologist and neuro-ophthalmologist in Melbourne. We're here at the Neuro-Ophthalmology Society of Australia, the NOSA annual general meeting, uh, scientific meeting here in Melbourne in 2018, and we're taking the opportunity to interview our speakers Dr. Tim Matthews is one of the international guest speakers here at the meeting. Uh, Tim is the clinical lead at the University Hospitals Birmingham um, and the uh, the very large neuro-ophthalmology unit there. Um, I have the, uh, the pleasure of introducing him. He's been one of my mentors and I've been very grateful for his help and we're really grateful to have him here at the meeting where he's been giving some fantastic talks. Um, we wanted to ask you, uh, Tim, welcome to Melbourne. We wanted to ask you about your talk on the uh, IIH treatment trial. Where are we now with IIH management? Uh, perhaps I could start by asking you to define IIH as that's somewhat of a controversial issue in itself. Uh, thanks very much, Neil. And um, uh, the greetings or the welcome in Melbourne has been fantastic from my point of view. Um, it's been great fun coming here and uh, also having the opportunity to share some of this information, particularly about our work on IIH. Um, as you'll remember from my uh, presentation, I use the IIHTT as a bit of a whipping post um, in order to highlight the fact that uh, although it's gone some way to try and answer a, sp a specific question in IIH management, uh, it's unfortunately fallen somewhat short of the mark in terms of uh, helping us with the global management of this patient population. Um, IIH, as you know, is a condition that primarily affects women of childbearing age. Um, in fact, um, more than 90% of patients um, are female um, with an increase in body mass index um, and presenting usually with uh, headache and papilledema. Um, we don't accept any other cranial neuropathy apart from a six-nerve palsy as being um, uh, uh, present in this condition um, with the diagnostic criteria, although those of us who practice in neuroophthalmology recognize that very occasionally other cranial neuropathies may occur. Um, the, the, the diagnostic procedure uh, that these patients all need to go undergo is once papilledema is recognized, uh, they need to have brain imaging that excludes um, structural lesion uh, and then uh, CSF uh, sampling uh, to exclude other causes of raised intracranial pressure uh, and to confirm that there is raised intracranial pressure uh, as the underlying cause of the optic disc swelling. Um, so once we've defined that uh, patient group, uh, we recognize that a proportion of them um, uh, will then um, uh, uh, potentially have uh, problems with their vision, which if not uh, dealt with uh, appropriately, uh, can lead to permanent uh, visual problems. So we've recently um, uh, published a consensus guideline on the management of uh, IIH, in which we've identified three groups that we can segregate out once we've identified papilledema. Uh, those are the typical IIH patients which I've just described. Um, the ones that we worry more about are the ones with a fulminant presentation of visual loss um, that need rapid intervention in order to um, save their vision. And then the third group are those with an atypical presentation where their body mass um, index uh, may not be significantly rise, uh, elevated, 
And we need to go back and look for secondary potential causes in that group specifically uh, to determine whether or not we're looking at uh, the coexistent um, problem uh, that's uh, masquerading as idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Um, thanks, Tim. Look, that's uh, before we um, get further into the topic of IIH itself, I'd be really interested to ask you on your, your top list of differentials for uh, IIH uh, in that population, as you say, particularly older male patients, uh, patients who are not overweight, um, what would be the standard uh, expected investigations you would do? So um, whenever we see anybody with uh, papilledema, uh, with or without a raised body mass index, uh, there are a standard list of things that we're looking at in order to try and exclude. If you've got a raised body mass index but you're male, uh, the top one on that list is um, uh, a sleep disorder, so with uh, uh, significant hypoxia at night, so obstructive sleep apnea. Um, if you're female and of uh, uh, not a raised body mass index, then uh, we need to look for, uh, for other confounding things, uh, such as anemia, uh, exposure to certain drugs, uh, including vitamin A analogs, um, tetracyclines, um, some chemotherapeutic agents like cyclosporin uh, have also been implicated in causing these sorts of problems. So, um, and then uh, also uh, cerebral venous sinus pathology, such as a thrombosis, uh, be all things that we would look to exclude. Um, I wanted to ask you, Tim, whether you think there's an increased risk or whether people are still at risk of getting IIH if they suddenly gain weight, even though they're perhaps still not massively overweight. Yeah, so we certainly recognize that this occurs, but I think the, the, the um, ethos in both the consensus guideline paper and in the infographic is that in this group where the body mass index isn't elevated, we need to really go through with a fine-tooth comb to exclude other possible um, known secondary causes. Once we've excluded those, we recognize that there will be a group that have a relatively normal, maybe overweight body mass index but not obese, uh, with recent, recent weight gain, uh, who have got the, the uh, other features that indicate they've got idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Thanks, Tim. Look, we might move on to the um, specific implications of the IIH treatment trial, if that's okay with you. And um, this will probably be familiar to most of our listeners um, as a um, very large multi-centre randomised controlled trial that was done to investigate the, um, the uh, treatment of IIH with acetazolamide. Um, and uh, could you please comment on, uh, on what you think are the significant findings of the, the trial and perhaps its shortcomings? So I think the, um, the, the trial, <clears throat> excuse me, the trial set out uh, um, quite clearly what its objectives were, and that was to demonstrate a treatment effect from acetazolamide versus placebo in the management of um, mild to moderate visual loss. Um, and what they... Um, stated as their primary outcome that they were looking for was a treatment effect of 1.3 decibel improvement on the visual fields in this group. And in the supplementary material online, they explained their rationale for using that uh, cutoff. Um, what the trial found uh, was a modest effect in terms of visual improvement from the group that were taking acetazolamide compared to the uh, placebo. Um, I Put forward, I put up the main slide uh, of the graph of uh, change in parametric mean deviation in the two groups uh, as part of my presentation um, and showed that the error bars um, for both the placebo group and the acetazolamide group were quite wide at all uh, time points. 
um, with um, various different ways of uh, managing the missing data uh, from uh, uh, various uh, data points in the study, uh, the group were able to uh, show that the difference between the treated and the untreated group uh, changed depending on how they'd looked at um, handling the missing data. Um, but however they managed to uh, do this, they didn't manage to reach their goal of a difference of 1.3 decibels between the two groups. Um, so the, the change or the difference between the two groups was statistically significant, um, but not clinically significant uh, as, the, uh, 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 as the trial uh, authors indicated. Um, this has then led to um, people uh, discussing uh, the relevance of, of the trial in terms of the management of patients with IAH. Um, and I also highlighted a point and counterpoint um, discussion uh, that ha occurred in the Journal of Neuroophthalmology um, after the trial was published, uh, where one of the main trial authors indicated that um, acetazolamide treatment is probably only um, uh, applicable uh, to uh, a small group or a small percentage of the patients that we do see with IIH, uh, and those are people that experiencing mild uh, uh, visual loss or moderate visual loss uh, who need some er uh, emergent treatment or uh, early treatment uh, in order to uh, help control uh, that problem uh, while they are losing weight. Um, our, the other trial data that I uh, put forward was our very low calorie diet uh, trial that we carried out in uh, Birmingham, which was published in the BMJ in 2010, uh, which demonstrated that whether you were taking Diamox or not, as uh, some patients uh, were throughout the cohort study, um, there was no change without diet in all the variables that we looked at. But during the three months that the uh, patients were having the very low calorie diet, all the measures that we use uh, routinely and uh, clinically uh, to look at IIH improved. And when we looked at some measures that we don't routinely use clinically, like uh, contrast sensitivity, um, uh, that also improved. Um, but all of the symptoms that the patients complain of uh, improved in a statistically and clinically significant manner uh, during the course of that trial. One of the other things that trial demonstrated is that um, if you do manage to get patients to lose weight over a short period of time and recheck their weight and symptoms and signs uh, three months later uh, when we're, they're no longer taking a very low-calorie diet, uh, those changes are maintained. Um, we do know that um, maintaining weight loss in patients who are overweight or obese is difficult. And I also pointed out that we're trying to answer uh, that question is what is the best way of uh, uh, helping people to lose weight uh, long term uh, when they have this condition and we're hopeful that a trial that we've just finished recruiting to and are currently uh, looking at the data from uh, will help us answer that question in the fullness of time. Thanks Tim, I think that explains your way that you approach weight loss as part of the, the critical management um, in this condition very well. Something that, that bothers me quite a bit is that I, I feel that we um, often underestimate the non-visual and um, morbidity of this condition. In our practice we see that a lot of these patients end up leaving work or they change jobs or they scale their jobs down and whether that's because of headache or whether there's some cognitive problems. Um, and I was just wondering if you would might comment on that. So you very uh, neatly encapsulated quite a few of the things that came out in the consensus uh, guidelines. There are a lot of questions about uh, comorbidities other than the visual problems. Um, and one of the significant problems in this condition is the headache. And the headache's not necessarily directly related to raised intracranial pressure. Um, we think 
now that this is more a triggering factor um, because quite often once the raised pressure is relieved, they still have migraine or migraine type headaches that need to be uh, treated in their own right. So a big part of the uh, infographic that was published in Practical Neurology uh, highlights the necessity of treating the headache. Um, as I pointed out in the management part of that infographic, there are three puzzle pieces which fit together, um, one of which is uh, headache management, uh, the, third, uh, the second one is uh, visual management, uh, and uh, uh, these, you know, we, they have to be uh, uh, dealt with as a package, they can't be uh, dealt with in isolation. And that really gets down to um, the fact that you need a multidisciplinary team in order to actually help these patients. And you've got to view the clinical assessment as being a small part of what we're doing when these patients visit the clinic, checking their vision, um, finding out how that is, seeing how they're doing with their weight loss is just a small part of what's going on in terms of actually um, uh, helping these people. Um, all of the trainees that come through my clinical service recognize that this clinic is very different from any other ophthalmology clinic they go to. It's more of a sort of a psychological uh, clinical um, interaction with the patient. Um, by and large, my patients uh, think of me as a friend, uh, and they think of the conversations that we have when they come to the clinical assessment uh, as a friendly conversation about how they're getting on with their life, not how uh, their papilledema is getting on. Um, and I think that's a really important um, uh, approach to this condition. You've got to be approaching them as an individual, um, not as a person with papilledema. Thanks, Tim. That's uh, that's terrific. Uh, can I come down to this very practical point of the weight management, if, if that's okay? Um, we're, we're, when running a, uh, a clinic and seeing someone with IIH, with all this evidence behind you, what do you practically do to help them lose weight? So the, the first and most practical thing that we do is we run uh, patient support days on a regular basis, which uh, allow people to come in and see how lifestyle modification is the most important thing in actually helping them lose weight. We don't use the word diet or dieting in the clinic at all. We don't discuss that as a method of, of, of weight change with patients. Uh, we talk to them about the whole of their lifestyle, what they're doing in terms of exercise, how they're running their life, uh, how they're structuring their meal plans during the day, so how frequently they're eating um, and are they eating on a regular basis in order to actually have a regular input of calories. Um, when we did a, a sort of a rough questionnaire with our patients, uh, we found that not eating breakfast was a very common um, uh, feature in patients with IIH, um, probably also in doctors who manage IIH as well. Um, uh, but the, that simple fact of starting the day with uh, caloric input uh, that then allows you to um, uh, carry on for a few hours before you need your next uh, uh, set of calories means that you're taking on fewer calories at that next um, uh, available time. Um, and uh, structuring uh, regular meals through the day is an important um, part in helping uh, patients. But as I said, it's, it's lifestyle management or lifestyle changes which we need to uh, get the patients focused on uh, and we work actively with them in order to do that in a number of ways. Uh, thanks Tim. I, I think um, just in the last minute I was wondering if you could just give us the top three big pitfalls that you see young players stepping into when they first start looking after pe with people with IIH. Um, so the number one pitfall is to start the consultation by saying, have you lost weight? 
um, or to have the nurse measure the patient's weight before they come into the clinic room. Um, because if the patients haven't lost weight, the whole consultation has changed in tenor uh, after that. Um, so uh, it, it's very important that you, uh, you, know, you approach the patient as a whole, gain the patient's confidence before you then discuss the weight issue, just in case you're both surprised by the fact that it, uh, it hasn't gone well. Uh, I think an, another pitfall is not dilating the patient to look at the optic disc um, because uh, you know, low grades of papilledema will be easily missed and easily confused um, if, uh, if the patient's not dilated. And uh, the third pitfall, if I have to name three, uh, is uh, not being critical in your optic disc assessment. Um, there are subtle changes in the optic disc that tell you whether somebody has or has not got papilledema, and it's all too easy to look at a tilted disc and think it's papilledematous without actually being really critical. The, the positive negative findings are really important in terms of making a decision between true swelling and pseudo swelling, and you've got to skill yourself up to look for those things to make sure that you're uh, positively ex excluding features of papilledema in patients who have pseudo papilledema. Thanks, Tim. That's uh, that's terrific. And uh, I just on another point, just like to um, to thank you for confirming the recurring theme in this podcast that uh, neuro ophthalmology and psychology are in fact uh, completely indistinguishable and uh, and and always overlapping. So thank you. Um, I think that's all. Um, we'll thank you very much for your time. That was terrific, and uh, we look forward to having you back in Australia again uh, at a future occasion. That would be terrific. Thanks.